0: The most insulting thing about computers is the fact that they do exactly what I asked them
1: to. Right. And then it turns out that it's you that's wrong. But how could
0: that be? I am never
1: wrong. Well, really, the question is, why would the computer say it like
0: that? That's just rude. <laughs> right. I mean, I, I know I'm a fallible human, but you don't have to be so mean about it.
1: <laughs> I, don't, oh, I, yeah. I, don't, I don't like Crying myself to sleep. I mean, I'm used to it, it, but... Yes. I I mean...
0: uh, Frequency breeds complacency, I suppose.
1: And all that jazz. It's just like the unfathomable darkness and inevitability of the heat death of the universe. And plus, you have to remind me of typos.
0: (laughs) And why do you have to use the angry red squiggle? No one likes
1: that. (laughs) It It is not a friendly... Squiggle.
0: I have noticed that at least with Google Docs, the grammar is the blue squiggle and the spelling is like the red squiggle. So you know which mistake you've made. And they're both mean they are like what would be a less annoying color like blues, not so bad. And I feel like it's less opinionated because grammar is more flexible. You could think
1: I'm wrong, but I'm right. Spelling less so. That would be a good name for your autobiography. You could think I'm wrong, but I'm right.
0: <laughs> oh, I thought you were, I thought it was going to be spelling less so.
1: <laughs> oh, or the angry red squiggle. <laughs> no, that's the episode title. It's <laughs> not going to twist it.
0: Oh, hello, alleged human, and welcome to the Chaos Lever Podcast. My name is Ned, and I'm definitely not a rabbit. Rabbits are small furry, woodland creatures with floppy ears and cute little tails. I am a silicon-based, quasi-intelligent, hyper-aware, autonomous. I mean, I'm a person! I'm a human, not a rabbit. With me is Chris. Actually is a rabbit. A six-foot-tall rabbit named Chris? Hi, Chris. Harvey? Is that your middle name? That's my rabbit name. Chris Harvey. Among the woodland folk. Mm. Is that kind of like a furry name?
1: No. So that's a different name. Is what you're <laughs> I was trying to say it's a very clean-shaven name, but no, you had to double down on your own joke. Because <laughs> my joke is good. <laughs> well. And
0: yours is pedestrian. <sighs> Ooh. I came with the big words, too. Look out. I don't know, That scary joke always reminds me of Night Court. Were you one who watched Night Court? Oh yes.
1: A, I was I mean, who didn't. Then unfortunately they brought it back, which we don't need to talk about. I refuse to acknowledge that happened. I mean, I will say this for it. It's better than the new quantum leap. I also refuse
0: to acknowledge that. <laughs> why do you why are they trying to destroy everything that was great
1: about my teenage years? There wasn't much. <laughs> Let me hold on to something. Well, I mean, patchouli's still available, so you're probably gonna be okay. <sighs>
0: You do this to hurt me, and I know you do. (laughs) I don't know what you mean. That you know my overall feelings on patchouli, also known as pine dirt.
1: (laughs) Is that what it translates into?
0: I mean, as far as my nose is concerned, yes. I also just have a general association of patchouli with dirt bags because the first person I ever met that wore patchouli heavily was... He was a dirtbag uh, of the highest variety, uh, and he hung out with us sweet teenagers, him being at the ripe age of 20, which was weird. It's a Even little not better. normal. No. So I think there's just a strong association between that smell and that guy, and it doesn't matter how much time passes, that never quite goes away. Like a lot of smell memories.
1: I guess a better question is what does wireless communication smell like? Wow. How's Elite that for a segue? segue.
0: Well <laughs> done. It. Well, if we're talking about predatory behavior, <laughs> Wi-Fi 7 is coming for your children. Do I do I have everyone's attention now? Sweet. <laughs> Let's chat about Wi-Fi 7, but before we get into that, one quick thing I want to note to listeners. Guess what? We now have a YouTube channel. It's under Chaos Lever. Should be pretty easy to find. So if you want to see our facey faces do the talky talky, you can do that on YouTube. And hey, if you're watching us on YouTube right now, you could stop looking at our facey faces if it's off-putting to you and instead listen to the podcast. What we're trying to say is you've got options. (laughs) And we know which option is better, but hey, it's 2023 and apparently all podcasts need a YouTube channel. So, Wi-Fi 7. Attentive uh, listeners might remember my recent battle with wireless access points at the old homestead. While I won that particular protracted battle, I'm also well aware that the war is far from over. And I'm going to say my only real path to victory is the complete annihilation of the current devices. Real scorched earth, earth policy here. And then finding some suitable replacements for them. So uh, in the process of looking at potential wireless access point replacements, because I don't use a wireless router because I'm not. Uh, what's the word I'm looking for? In the 20th century. Yeah, there's that. Uh, yeah. OK, we'll go with that. Um, a barbarian, I think is what I was looking for. Uh, <laughs> so I stumbled across Wi-Fi 7 the successor to 6E. So my access points, I thought they were running Wi-Fi 6, but then I actually looked at them and it turns out they're running Wi-Fi 5. So I am like, way behind here. But it does beg the question, should I upgrade the devices to 6E, which is available now and a ratified standard, or do I wait for Wi-Fi 7 devices to become more prevalent and slightly more affordable, which we'll get to later. And guess what, listeners and Chris? I'm going to drag you along for the ride. So get in, loser. We're going Wi-Fi 7 shopping. Cool. Yeah. I think that actually makes me the Regina George of this situation. Do you want to be Gretchen Wieners?
1: Probably end up being that
0: by default. (laughs) The other option is being Amanda Siegfried, which is not a bad thing very fetch stop trying to make fetch happen okay so a little background on the whole wi-fi standards thing uh there's the popular wi-fi naming standard and then there's the actual standard that's managed by the ieee so if you remember hearing 802.11 something something that's the actual standard uh 802.11n is the one a lot of people remember Uh, Since it introduced the alternative numbering from the Wi Fi Alliance and it was called Wi Fi 4, that was way back in 2008. Uh, And since then, we've had Wi Fi 5, 6, 6E, and now 7 based on the 802.11BE standard because it'd be awesome.
1: I know why the numbers would move up. I mean, couldn't it be 802.12 at some point? Uh, you would. I think maybe, but that's not how the standard works. Uh, No. Arbitrary letters thrown on at the end is the way to go? No. No. (laughs) So 802.11
0: is just the general wireless standard for wireless communications protocols. And every time they amend the standard, it basically increments alphabetically. So if you go back, like previous standards were n and then you got into ac so they basically got all the way through uh a through z as the first letter and then just started tacking on a second letter so i imagine at some point we're going to get to like three letters as being part of the standard uh and then something to look forward to yeah or the heat death of the universe whichever i was thinking about what android's going to do when it hits version 27 but that's a whole other problem that we don't need to to delve into um So the general pattern is that the IEEE takes forever to ratify a Wi-Fi standard multiple years. So once the main pieces of the next generation of the standard are settled on, vendors start developing hardware to support it because making hardware kind of takes a while. Uh, The net result is that hardware products that support the standard are available before the official standard has actually been ratified. And everyone's just okay with that? Um 802.11be should be ratified in mid 2024 in case anyone cares but you can buy Wi-Fi 7 devices today. Neat.
1: Cool. Glad we have the standard.
0: Same thing happened with every previous Wi-Fi standard, so it's just it's the way that they do things. So, what is new in the Wi-Fi 7 standard? How does it compare to the previous generations? Let's hit the highlights, and then we'll circle back in some more detail. Uh, We'll start with the spectrum support. Wi-Fi 7 supports the 2.5, 2.4, 5 gigahertz, and 6 gigahertz spectrums. So all three of those spectrums. That's no different than 6E. 6E had the same spectrums in its support, uh, but the way that it was supported was a little bit different, which we'll get to. It uses 4096 QAM, or Quadrature Amplitude Modulation. Don't expect me to say that again, or explain what it means. It uses larger chunks of the 5 and 6 gigahertz bandwidth per channel. It supports multi-link operation across multiple spectrum bands. It has lower latency by using multi-link operation. It has flexible channel utilization, and it has a time-sensitive network extension, which I didn't have time to get into, but it's a really interesting application where you, if you do have a time-sensitive network, those are typically wired because they're time-sensitive. And this extends that time sensitivity to wireless communications using Wi-Fi as opposed to some proprietary solution. Which is important for like manufacturing and other applications. So good for them. Yay. And in this use case, time sensitive means it means that uh it ha- things have to be going in lockstep with respect to a specific time code. So you can't it can't be like eventual delivery. <laughs> it has to be gotcha. precision delivery. So there are certain applications where time sensitivity matters. So, let's expand on some of those, starting with the spectrum. Uh, Probably the biggest deal is the way that Wi-Fi 7 makes use of available spectrum. If we rewind the clock to the original Wi-Fi standards, uh, probably before some of you were using Wi-Fi, you had 802.11a and B, and this is before they named them Wi-Fi anything. Those would technically be like Wi-Fi 1 and 2. But basically, 802.11a used 5 gigahertz spectrum and B used the 2.4 gigahertz spectrum. 2.4 is also used by your wireless phone in your house if you still have one of those. Uh, Microwaves tend to emit uh, radiation in that spectrum and a whole bunch of other things. RC cars also use that spectrum. Um, So there could be a significant amount of interference happening. 5 gigahertz is a little less crowded, which is nice. But it also means, because of the fact that each standard only supported one of those spectrums, an 802.11a device couldn't connect to an 802.11b router. That's not great. Who doesn't want two routers? Well, the introduction of 802.11n, which was Wi-Fi 3? I think, or four, might've been four, it was Wi-Fi four. Uh, That packaged both of those spectrum in the same device while maintaining backwards compatibility with the A, B, and G standards. So that meant if you had an 802.11n router, you could use any device with it, essentially. Uh, And then the FCC in the United States started releasing portions of the six gigahertz spectrum for unlicensed use. And so the Wi-Fi Alliance wanted to get in on that action because higher frequencies tend to allow you to transmit more data because the wave wiggles more,
1: to use a technical term. Wiggle, 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 wiggle? Uh, Precisely. Neat. See, I understand (laughs) (laughs) Wi-Fi. It's really all you need to know.
0: So in theory, if you're using 6 gigahertz, you should be able to push more bits than 2.4 or 5, all other things being equal. So that's kind of where we were at 802.11n and Wi-Fi, I think Wi-Fi 5 was the last standard to not use 6 gigahertz. Wi-Fi 6 added support for 6 gigahertz, which is easy to remember, 6, 6 gigahertz, yay. Uh, but it was super limited because the FCC was very concerned about Wi-Fi 6 interfering with other devices that were using that unlicensed band. So routers and access points were very limited limited in the terms of power they could apply to that signal, meaning that it really wouldn't work unless two devices were very close together and line of sight. So if there was like a wall between your device and and the wireless router, it couldn't use six gigahertz. That's it's not great. It turns out that the main use case for it in that case uh, was to have a line of sight between access points and use it for the mesh on the back end for your access points. So your actual device would still be using 2.4 or 5. And then the access points would be talking to each other using six gigahertz. So they would stay out of the other two spectrum bands and reserve that for clients.
1: Which actually kind of makes sense in terms of allocation.
0: Yeah, I mean, as long as you had line of sight between access points, it was great. And you Well, those mesh devices. Yeah. What do
1: they cost, like 12 bucks each? I mean, you could have one on each doorknob. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's a
0: valid point. Um, Wi-Fi 6E relaxed some of those restrictions. Uh, there was the introduction of a database uh, of devices using that. And so your access point or router could grab that database and selectively use the 6 gigahertz spectrum in tandem with that. Uh, device listing to make sure it didn't interfere with anything that was nearby. So because that was introduced, the FCC was like, all right, you can you know turn the power up a bit. And so now client devices could really start using six gigahertz. Uh, but each device was limited to using only one spectrum band at a time. So if my phone is using the five gigahertz band, it can't also use the six or the 2.4 in tandem to send more bits. You can think of that like as link aggregation, right? Uh, If you're into wired networking, I can't aggregate all these different bands to just blast data across the wireless. Until Wi-Fi 7. Yeah, so that introduced the ability for a single client device to leverage multiple streams across multiple bands. The multiple streams thing was possible before with MIMO, which multi-input, multi-output, yeah, I think so. Yeah. Uh, but you could only do it on a single band. So I could do MIMO multiple streams across five gigahertz, but I couldn't do it across multiple bands. Seven was like, nope, now you can do it across multiple bands, which lets you improve the throughput of any given client device. It also means that the router can dynamically allocate channels across multiple links to a single device. So if my device is using six gigahertz, but it moves a little further away and drops off of six gigahertz, it can seamlessly transfer to five gigahertz or 2.4 without having to reestablish the communication. So that just improves how your device functions over time as you move around your house or your office.
1: Right. And I take it you don't have to reconnect to a different network like you would in an N router. You would have, you know, network name dash 2.4 and network name dash five.
0: Yes, that's another thing that goes away is when you look at the available wireless uh, networks, you won't see two different networks for the two different spectrum bands. You'll just see a single network and it's up to your device and the access point to negotiate which bands your device can talk on. Uh, So that is all about the spectrum. Now we'll talk about channels and not like TV
1: channels. This is 57 channels and nothing's on. Mm. Hmm. You remember when 57 was a lot of channels? Yeah, that's cute. Those were the
0: days. (laughs) Remember channels being a thing. (laughs) Before streaming. Anyway. So here's a little bit of fun trivia. The 2.4 gigahertz band came with 14 channels that were spread from the 2.4 to 2.5 range in 22 megahertz increments. Now, I'm not going to try to do the math here, but basically what it came down to was that each channel overlapped with the adjacent channels. And so, in general practice, if you are using 802.11b or G, you really only use channels 1, 6, and 11 to avoid overlap. And if you weren't in the U.S., you could also use channel 14. Do you remember this?
1: Yeah. I mean, that's one of those fun things that as you're learning about networking, you find in the advanced settings. Ooh, channels. That's exciting.
0: I'll pick I'll pick three, <laughs> which then doesn't actually help you because now you're getting <laughs> interference from like channel one and six at the same time. Hooray. Yay. Most devices today will automatically pick a channel for you in the 2.4 gigahertz range.
1: And same thing with five five
0: gigahertz, which is less of a problem. Uh, which
1: incidentally is one of the reasons that the world famous technical support technique of turn it off and turn it on again <laughs> works for increasing your bandwidth on your Wi-Fi router. Because what happens is it selects a new, more empty channel. Yep.
0: Until people do the same thing in adjacent houses and you end up with a cha- <laughs> like an overloaded channel again. Fortunately, 802.11 G and N introduced orthogonal frequency division multiplexing. Please don't ask me to explain that. But what it did is it slimmed down the portion of the channel that was actually being used to 16.25 megahertz. And that reduced the overlap, which increased the number of usable channels. But at the same time, it also added an option to double your channel width to 40 megahertz to get more speed since each device was only getting a single channel. So now you're back to the same problem. (laughs) At least in the 2.4 gigahertz. and 50, in the five gigahertz range, you had a little more room to work with there. So I guess what I'm saying is that it's not just the spectrum band you're using, but how wide the channel is determines how much data you can push down that channel. Because five gigahertz and six gigahertz are higher frequency, and they have these wider available channels due to the nature of being bigger numbers, because that's how numbers work. Um, 802.11ac, a five gigahertz only standard called Wi-Fi 5, used 80 megahertz channels by default and an optional uh, 160 megahertz channel if you, If your device supported it and there was
1: available bandwidth, that was amazing math that you did on the fly. There, I was was very impressed.
0: So, if you combine that with multiple antennas on the client and the receiver, you could get a theoretical throughput of five hundred megabits per link, which is pretty pretty good. At least we thought it was good at the time. Before, like Netflix and a hundred devices on your home network,
1: ironically, they're probably all watching Netflix. (laughs)
0: <laughs> I mean, Netflix is on. No one's watching it, but yeah. <laughs> so how about 6 gigahertz and Wi-Fi 7? So now Wi-Fi 7 uses 160 megahertz size channels by default with an optional doubling to 320 megahertz. And it supports up to 16 simultaneous streams, which gets you a theoretical max throughput of 46.1 gigabits per second. That's more than 500. A little bit. Now, no one's going to get that outside of a lab. (laughs) And maybe not even in a lab. It is theoretical. But that's a pretty big jump from Wi-Fi 5's 1.1 gigabits per second. Yowza.
1: Yeah.
0: So with these larger channels, there is the increased chance that some portion of any given channel is going to encounter interference. Our air is brimming with radio waves after all. So that other feature I mentioned, the flexible channel utilization, it lets Wi-Fi 7 keep using a portion of that Mm -hmm. channel, even if other portions are being canceled out or interfered with. That's kind of neat. Yeah. So it can make better use of what, what channels are available to it. The last big piece is modulation. And this is the part that I barely understand. And when I say barely, I mean not at all. I, That's I yeah. I tried to read some documentation around it. And there were uh, constellations, phase shifting, Fourier transforms, and other things that all honestly sounded suspiciously like they were plucked out of a Star Trek episode. Like, I'm sure you could invert the polarity or something as well. So what I can tell you is that Wi-Fi 6 and 6E used 1024 QAM, and Wi-Fi 7 uses 4096 QAM. And that's like a zillion
1: times more better? At least, if not more than that.
0: Yes. Uh, To put it in like simplest terms that I might kind of understand is that modulation is how you pack more information into a signal. By altering some aspect of the wave that carries the data. So AM radio modulates the amplitude to encode information. FM radio uses frequency modulation. And QAM uh, uses some multi-dimensional thing brought to us by the Q Collective.
1: Eh? Yeah, I think QAM stands for Q's awesome modulation. So... That sounds accurate.
0: I'll, I'll have to ask Picard and see if he agrees. So seriously, I, I, I was reading the Wikipedia article, and once it started showing me limit functions, I was like, nope,
1: I'm out. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I get it. I tried watching a number of YouTube videos, particularly around Fourier transformations, because there's a lot of talk about how that one equation and that one function Is like basically the only reason technology exists. (laughs) Because it doesn't just help Wi-Fi, it helps like everything. Yeah. Yeah. It does
0: something with graphics, I think. And it's probably used in AI. (laughs) I think it's used. So it's like, wow, yeah, this is important. I think you need to know matrix algebra and
1: and calculus, which come on. Nobody knows that. (laughs) Ever. 2023, nobody knows calculus anymore. (laughs)
0: Oh. I did once.
1: Anyway, so let me
0: bottom line what everything I discovered and how this applies to my home networking conundrum. So the access points I have today are about 5 years old, I'm guessing. And they support 802.11ac and 11n, which is Wi-Fi 4 and 5. Which means the maximum throughput I'm going to get is 3 gigabits per second. If I had just the right client device, exactly the right distance from my access point, and Mars was in the house of Jupiter and not in retrograde, you don't I'm almost positive
1: you got that all wrong.
0: Okay, <laughs> so if I move up to Wi-Fi six E, that would be a boost to a theoretical nine point three gigabits per second of throughput, so tripling what is possible today. Plus, I would get a bunch of other features that improve performance and handle client devices better, such as support for eight MIMO streams at the same time instead of four with Wi-Fi 5. So big boost there. But of course, as we've already discussed, Wi-Fi 7 does kind of blow 60 out of the water. It's got four times the bandwidth. It doubles the MIMO streams to 16. So it seems like Wi-Fi 7 is probably the way to go but that does you know, introduce some new questions. Can you get Wi-Fi access points right now? Yes, yes you can. TP-Link has a mesh system available now. But that asks two more questions. One, how much does it cost? And two, do I have any client devices that could actually use Wi-Fi 7? So the answer to the first question was super simple. I looked up the pricing and their mesh Access point system called Deco BE95. They sell it in a two pack and it's $1,200. Okay. With two access points. Yowza. For comparison, the previous generation for 6A, their Deco XE75 two pack is $270. Which is different. Well, if I want 4X the bandwidth, I guess I have to pay 4X the cost. And this is obviously because this stuff is brand new. They're the probably, I won't say they're the very first to market, but they're pretty close. And the chips are expensive to produce. The cost will go down. There was probably a time where that 6E2 pack was also like $1,200. To answer the second question about client devices, the answer is no. (laughs) No, I don't have any devices in my house that can use Wi-Fi 7 because almost no one has made them yet. (laughs) In fact, there's a pretty good chance that most of the devices in my house and yours couldn't even use Wi-Fi 6E. So let me run through a few quickly. My phone is a Pixel 7, which can use 6E. So that's probably the device I use most often, hooray. My laptop is a Surface Laptop 4, which can use Wi-Fi 6, but not 6E. So I'd have to upgrade my laptop. The main television that everyone watches in the house is a Samsung Q90A, which has a Wi-Fi 5 capable card because I didn't opt for the 8K 8K Neo model. It was like double the price (laughs) of the 4K. (laughs) I'm like, you can't even watch anything in 8K right now. So basically, not only can none of my devices use Wi-Fi 7, The majority of devices can't use 6E or in many cases, even Wi-Fi 6. So it would be ridiculous for me to spend $1,200 on two access points when I could just wait 6 to 12 months and probably pay half or less as the products hit the market. I also don't plan to refresh my laptop or phone for at least a year and the kids are not getting new tablets for at least the same amount of time and I'm not replacing that TV for much longer than that because I got it last year. So, to turn the tables on our listeners, should you get Wi-Fi 7 now? No. No, you shouldn't. But, if you have to go out and buy access points today... And you don't want to replace them for like the next five to 10 years. I guess. Otherwise, just buy the Wi-Fi 6E access points at a quarter of the price and know that most of your devices won't even be able to use that yet.
1: Yeah, that makes sense. Trying to figure out. A non enterprise reason that you would need that much bandwidth? I think it's
0: pretty unlikely that you would run into a situation in a home network today where you would need more than what 6E can deliver. Right. When 8K video does eventually hit the house and I've got tablets and TVs streaming 8K video, then yeah, maybe Wi-Fi 7 actually does make sense, but I'm probably going to need a bigger internet pipe more than I'm going to need faster Wi-Fi at that point.
1: Right. Yeah. The only reason I can think of that it's it would make a lot of sense is if you had like 27 children.
0: Yeah. I don't or think you my-
1: like owned that. a hotel. <laughs> What's the thing? You're getting into commercial and enterprise use cases where- right. And it's likely they won't use this in any type of a production environment yet because the standard is not ratified.
0: (laughs) (laughs) You sweet summer child. I like that you believe that.
1: I've decided Tuesday is Optimism Day.
0: Yay. Wi-Fi 7 in a commercial context, a stadium, a hotel, something where you're going to have a lot of people all sucking up Wi-Fi as much as possible because they want to like live stream, Twitchify their TikToks of the concert. Yeah. You might want to invest in the Wi-Fi 7. But I think, yeah, for anybody who's just thinking about refitting their access points at home, 6E's got everything you need and then some. So um, thank you for taking this journey with me. You can disembark on the left. Please remember that all your belongings should go with you or they become mine because it's maritime law. Speaking of which, have you heard about Sovereign Citizens? Okay, we need to move on. (laughs) If you subscribe to our newsletter, I'll include a link to an awesome, almost two hour long video that talks about Sovereign Citizens. I thought it was super fun.
1: Lightning round? Lightning round. Google still struggling to recover from zone outage in Paris. The Google Cloud's Europe West 9-A zone suffered a significant amount of damage back in late April. While the Goog has been evasive on what the exact situation was, terms like water intrusion and fire incident have been thrown around in the press releases. French forums discussing the event believe that there was a cooling pump that failed, leading to a leak of some kind, which then ignited a fire in the battery room. If you're keeping score at home, none of those words used in order are good. Near computers, or just like in general. Electrical fires are very dangerous and very dirty. Whatever the specifics were the intrusion incident was severe enough that the zone still has not recovered three weeks later. Wow. Just a reminder that while these kinds of incidents are exceedingly rare, they do happen. They happen on-prem and they happen in the cloud. But, I mean, it's not a big deal, right? All your production workloads are designed to at least survive a zone failure, right? Right?
0: I hope you bought that outage insur- insurance we talked about a couple weeks ago. <laughs> a shocking new attack overpowers servers, literally. It makes them read Foucault. Foucault? Nah, just kidding. Makes them read James Joyce. Ha, again, I'm being funny. <sighs> <laughs> Uh, anyway, so two researchers from the University of Birmingham in England have developed an attack which can be used to compromise the Software Guard Extensions, SGX, feature on an Intel server. The attack uses control of the voltage regulator to modify cryptographic processes. Since the SGX doesn't know about the firmware controlling baseboard components like the voltage regulator, it can't detect the malicious attack. Fortunately the attack does require access to the board management controller of the server, which is usually attached to a network that is physically segmented from the rest of the data center. Malicious firmware is injected into the BMC and used to manipulate the voltage. In addition to breaking the SGX encryption, the voltage can also be used to overvolt the server, permanently bricking it. The duo have titled the attack the attack PM fault, which is not nearly as cool as PM Dawn, a criminally underrated band from the mid-90s.
1: Microsoft Activision merger approved by the EU. This has been going on for so long that I forget what we're even arguing about. But whatever it is, Redmond's long corporate merger nightmare could soon be over. The EU had raised up their hands in defense of consumers, fearing that Microsoft would be creating a monopolistic gaming situation. Microsoft finally appeased them by promising that everyone everywhere can play Call of Duty. These are the important problems of our times. Microsoft assured users that they will, quote, have the right to stream their games with any cloud game streaming device of their choice and play them on any device using any operating system. Which is a bold claim. (laughs) I don't even think Steam can do that. But it's frankly a claim that could have and should have been made a long time ago. Time will tell if this will be a win for gamers, but it appears to be a win for Microsoft. Now here's a question to ponder: The EU still hasn't approved this. So what's gonna what's gonna what's gonna happen there?
0: Uh, I don't know. I enjoyed uh, Brad Smith. <laughs> he said that the, the UK decision was quote probably the darkest day in our four decades in Britain. Which, wow, dude, maybe time to take it down a notch. <laughs> Microsoft signs on to make data center fusion a reality. In 10 years, of course, because fusion is always, always a decade away. Microsoft has signed an agreement with Helion Energy to build a commercial fusion facility in Washington State with an operational plant running by 2028. Hmm, that's less than 10 years. The thing about current fusion reactors across the world is not that they can't produce fusion. Most of them can and do on a regular basis. It's that none of them have been able to produce more power than it takes to run the reactor. And that's kind of a problem if you want fusion to be self-sustaining. Microsoft is also a little bit dubious, so they've agreed to buy power from Helion once the plant is producing said power. Helion is just one of many fusion startups that have received increased attention over the last decade from Venture Capital. If you want a more in-depth look at how Helion is approaching fusion, check out the YouTube video from Real Engineering. I'm cautiously optimistic about the state of fusion power, and as much as I like to lampoon it, it also seems like it could be an incredible fix for reducing carbon
1: emissions. Elon announces new Twitter CEO, and it's not Sheryl Sandberg. Huh. Hmm. Well, one of my New Year's predictions takes a turn for the worst. The new CEO of Twitter has been announced and will be NBC Universal's advertising chief, Linda Yacarino. Now, this does make perfect sense because at its core, Twitter can only exist from the grace of ad revenue something that Elon's never-ending antics have destroyed to the tune of something like two-thirds loss since him taking over. Mm. Now, a great philosopher once said that Elon would never approve a CEO that he didn't think he could control, which is probably why Sheryl Sandberg was never really in the running. Either that or even she couldn't imagine working with Elon on a daily basis. Both likely. Elon, never the greatest student of science or business, likely has never even heard of Yakarino, so he probably thinks he can turn her into his pawn. Then again, Elon still thinks his vaporware idea of X the everything app is worth talking about or is ever actually going to happen. Something tells me he's going to be wrong about both of those things. It is not Fetch.
0: Turns out copying other people's stuff willy-nilly might be illegal. What? <laughs> Isn't that just plagiarism? <sighs> There's a lawsuit in the District Court of Northern California against Microsoft, GitHub, and OpenAI regarding Copilot and its OpenAI Codex model. The suit alleges that the defendants have violated copyright, contract, privacy, and and business laws through the code that was ingested and regurgitated by Copilot with absolutely no attribution. While many of the initial allegations were thrown out by the judge, two of them are still standing. The first is that the codex is in breach of software licensing terms. And the second is that the reproduced code lacks the proper copyright attribution that's required by the DMCA. This is just the first step in what I am sure will be an extremely long and drawn out legal battle that may even end up in front of the Supreme Court. The problem, of course, is that GitHub Copilot and all the other AI projects aren't exactly waiting to see how things pan out. Instead, choosing to race forward at breakneck speed and deal with the legal fallout later, if ever. We could say that the horse is truly well and out of the barn, and now we're arguing about what type of hinges were on the open door.
1: I hope they were brushed nickel. Oh, I do like a good brush. I like a classy barn. Yeah, You're a very classy guy.
0: Hey, thanks for listening or something. I guess you found it worthwhile enough if you made it all the way to the end. So congratulations to you, friend. You accomplished something today. Hey, did you hear about the frustrated magician? He was pulling his hair out. (laughs) I'm so, so sorry. (laughs) You can find me or Chris on Twitter at Ned1313 and at Hater80, respectively, or follow the show on Twitter at Chaos underscore Lever, if that's the kind of thing you're into. (laughs) For anybody who's listening, Chris got up and walked (laughs) out. Oh, show notes are available at chaoslever.com as is the sign up for our newsletter if you like reading things which you shouldn't. Podcasts are better in every conceivable way. We'll be back next week to see what fresh hell is upon us. Ta ta for now. Baby come back. You can blame it all on me. You know it. <laughs>